We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa on Parshas Bo. The first drasha is about the questions of the sons that we make a big deal about at the Seder. The Torah relates one of the questions, When your children will ask you, what is this service that you're doing? So the Medrash quotes two views on this question. The first is that it's negative. The Jews got a bad message at that time that in the future, the Torah will be forgotten because you see that these children are asking very basic questions, meaning they don't even know basic of the Torah. The second view is positive, that the Jews were told that they're going to have descendants. So that's a positive message that this religion is going to continue long into the future. So these two outlooks totally contradict each other, and we have to understand what's going on in this medrash. Now, the question that the medrash raises is if someone has a child who's a Russia, because this is the question of the wicked son, so is that a good thing? Are the Jews happy that they're going to have descendants in the future, even if they're wicked? Or is that a bad thing because it means the Torah is going to be forgotten because the kids don't care about the Torah? So the Medrash Vamasa explains this whole issue, which is that the wicked son is a specific type of wicked Jew. He's not an overall wicked person who has no standards or morals at all, but he's a specific type of rebel against Judaism, which is that he rejects the ritual mitzvahs of Judaism, the mitzvahs that don't seem to make sense, like the Karban Pesach, like kosher, certain mitzvahs which don't seem to have a logical basis. But he does accept the ethical mitzvahs, the mitzvahs about justice, about don't kill, don't steal, the mitzvahs that have a logical basis, so those the Russia accepts. And we have many examples of Jews throughout the ages who accepted the logical mitzvahs of the Torah, the ethical component, but not the ritual one, not the mitzvahs that don't seem to make sense. So the Russia is representative of that group. So what he's criticizing is specifically the rituals, the mitzvahs like Karban Pesach that don't seem to have a reason. Now, says the Amedrash Vamasa, if we look at history, the people who reject the rituals of the Torah generally end up rejecting the morals of the Torah as well. So you can't really have one without the other. So that's the mistake that the Russia is making. One cannot follow only the moral aspect of the Torah. So this is the whole discussion that we have with the Russia regarding the Karban Pesach. The sacrifice of the Pesach, the first year, actually made sense. And the way the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains this is because that first year they took the blood and they put it on their doorposts as a sign that this is a Jewish home and God shouldn't kill the firstborns in this home. So this actually had a logic to it. And the Hamedrash Vahamasa says something a little different than the other commentators. The Medrash says that the Jews in Egypt remained distinct from the rest of Egyptian society. They had Hebrew names, they spoke Hebrew, So they were not fully assimilated. They had certain things about them which were uniquely Jewish, their special heritage, and were not Egyptian. 
Now, the question is that the Medrash elsewhere says that the Jews of that generation were totally immersed in idolatry. So they were not following the rules of Judaism anymore. They were worshiping the idolatry of the Egyptians. So how can these two things coexist? How can it be that they were idolaters and they also were uniquely Jewish? They had Jewish names. They spoke Hebrew. How do these two things make sense? So the standard explanation is that even though ideologically the Jews were worshiping idolatry, so in that regard they were sinning, but there were a few small things that they preserved their Jewish heritage. It's like nowadays a lot of assimilated Jews do a few things to preserve their heritage. So that's how the Jews in Egypt were. But the Medrash Ramasad doesn't like that approach. He points out that there were all sorts of good Jews throughout history who did not worship idolatry and still did not use Jewish names or speak Hebrew. So what are the chances that a bunch of idolaters in Egypt were using their Jewish names? So instead he suggests an alternative approach that there were different groups within the Jewish people. There was a small group who continued to be loyal to the Torah and they did not worship idolatry and they used Jewish names and spoke Hebrew. And then there was a large group who abandoned Judaism and they worshiped idolatry and did not use their Jewish names. So basically the Jews as a whole were divided. There was a small group who were willing to follow the rules of the Torah and then the larger group were abandoned the Torah and they were following in the ways of the Russia, they did not see the purpose of the rules of the Torah that don't make sense, that are not ethical. And he compares this to the situation in Germany in his time when the reform movement was beginning. And again, they were following in this direction, abandoning the rituals of the Torah, and they only believed in the moral rules of the Torah. So this is what he imagines was going on in Egypt as well, a sort of reform form movement. So now God is coming to redeem the Jews. And the question is what to do with all these people who don't want to follow the rules of the Torah. On the one hand, Hashem does not want to abandon them because they're part of the Jewish people. And the whole point of what he's doing here is to show that he cares about the Jewish people. He's going to take care of them. So if a large percentage of the Jews are abandoned, the Egyptians who don't differentiate at all between different levels of Jewish observance. As we know, anti-Semites never care whether Jews follow the rules or not. They group us all together. So if God doesn't save all the Jews, the Egyptians are going to say, look, he doesn't really care about them. So it's important that the entire Jewish people be saved, not just a few. On the other hand, how's God going to save people who are not willing to follow the rules? So that's why he gave a new, small, simple rule to put the blood of the the Karban Pesach on the doorposts. So even people who were far from Judaism would be able to do this simple sign and show that they are part of the Jewish people and that way they would be saved. So this was the reason for the Karban Pesach in Egypt. It was a simple way for these people to join up with the Jewish people and now be included in their redemption to show that even though they had drifted far from Judaism, but at the end of the day, they were part of the group of the Jewish people and they believed in God. So when it comes to the first Karban Pesach, the one they did in Egypt itself, that one actually makes sense even to the Russia. He's not going to question that because that one had a purpose in order to save the entire Jewish people.
Now, the Amedrish Vamasa points out that you see from this whole discussion so far the amazing capabilities of the Jewish people as well as their unique challenge. On the one hand, the Jewish people are able to rise rapidly, even if they're on a very low spiritual level, they can turn it around very quickly. Like we see all these Jews in Egypt who were totally disconnected from Judaism, when it came time to be redeemed, they were able to almost immediately turn the whole situation around and come right back to their Judaism. So that is the special capabilities of the Jewish people that even if they've sunk very low, they can rise to enormous spiritual heights very quickly. But the flip side is that the Jews also sink very quickly. So they can also go down spiritually just as rapidly as they go up. And that's why we see in Jewish history that the Jewish people sort of zigzag they go to great spiritual heights and then they fall because that is the uniqueness of the Jewish people, that this is their trajectory. They're able to go very high, higher than any other nation, and they also fall lower than anyone else. So that's the meaning of this medrash, that there are two messages in this wicked son in the future. Again, the wicked son is not asking about the first Karban Pesach. He's only asking about future Karban Pesachs. What is the point of this ritual that doesn't seem to have meaning? So one view in the medrash says this is a terrible thing because it means that there are Jews who don't see the value in the rituals of the Torah. They're only interested in the morals, but they don't follow the mitzvahs of the Torah. So this is a terrible message on the one hand. On the other hand, the fact that there are going to be these Jews in the future is a great blessing because we know that they're able to turn it around and rise to great spiritual heights very quickly. So this message that there would be Jews who question the value of the Torah in the future is both good and bad. On the one hand, it's distressing to hear that this will be going on. On the other hand, we know that these Jews eventually can immediately come back to Judaism and become contributing members of the Jewish people and grow very close to God. So ultimately, it's a blessing that we're going to have these people as part of the community and they have the potential to immediately come back and reconnect with the rules of the Torah and God. So that's the first drasha. The second drasha compares the redemption of Mashiach to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So the Medrash makes a strange comment. When the Jews left Egypt, they ran out Bechipazon. They just left immediately, very chaotically. And according to the Medrash, that's why the Egyptians chased after them. Because it's as if the Jews snuck out, so the Egyptians chased after them. So says Hashem, that's all when it comes to leaving Egypt. But in the future redemption of Mashiach, it's not going to be Bechipazon. It's going to be very leisurely and comfortably. The Jews are not going to have to run out. So no one's going to chase them. And the Medrash adds that Hashem says in Egypt, Ani dini. I and my court were leading the Jews. So that was the problem. It wasn't only Hashem. He also had his heavenly court. But in the times of Mashiach, Ani levadi. It's going to be just I, God, leading the Jews out. So that's why the 
Jews can go out more leisurely and no one's going to chase them. So all of this needs to be explained. What are the differences between Yitzias Mitzrayim versus the redemption of Mashiach, that nobody's going to chase the Jews and that the Jews will leave more leisurely and that it's only Hashem without his heavenly court. So to explain this, the Hamedrish Vahamasa refers to a debate between Ben Zoma and the rabbis, which is also mentioned in the Haggadah. And part of the debate is whether we're going to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim in the times of Mashiach. So according to the rabbis, even after Mashiach comes and we have a much greater redemption, we're still going to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim as well. Whereas according to Ben Zoma, after Mashiach comes, there's no longer a need to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim because there's a much greater redemption. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa asks, what is the logic that because there was a greater redemption, we no longer remember the first earlier redemption because it wasn't as great as the second one? Who cares which one was a greater redemption? There was Yitzias Mitzrayim. It was a great miracle in Jewish history. So why wouldn't we remember it even in the times of Mashiach, even though there's a greater subsequent miracle that happened? And he gives an example. Let's say someone has a great miracle happen to them, and then they have an even greater miracle happen to them. They would still be obligated to remember both miracles and not forget about the first one because now they had a better one that happened. So the Hamedrish Vamasa explains that the difference between Mashiach and Yetzias Mitzrayim is not just in terms of numbers or percents that Mashiach is a greater miracle than Yetzias Mitzrayim. It's a totally different type of miracle. And Amedrish Vamasa describes this very beautifully. He says that the miracle in Egypt is that Hashem stepped in and he brought all sorts of plagues on the Egyptians until finally they couldn't take it anymore and Paro was forced to let the Jews go free. But there was never any change internally in Paro. He never admitted the truth. He never saw that there was a God that he should not have enslaved the Jews. He never acknowledged any of that. He was just forced on an external level to let the Jews go because he couldn't withstand the punishment anymore. So that's one type of miracle. And that's how the Jews left Egypt. But the miracle of Mashiach is a much greater miracle because it's not that the enemies of the Jews or the wicked people are going to be forced to do something through punishment, but there's going to be an internal change. The whole concept of evil, the Yetzir Hara, all of the desires and evil inclinations that we see around us are all going to be destroyed at that point. So there's now going to be an internal change that comes over the whole world. No one's going to want to do the wrong thing. So that's a much more significant miracle. And that's why Ben Zoma says that at that point, we're not even going to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim because we're not going to understand the whole context of what it would mean that someone is trying to rebel against God and God is punishing them. That whole context is going to fall apart. All we're going to know is that people want to do the right thing and want to be connected with God. So that's a very powerful image for what it is that Mashiach 
Ruach brings. Says the HaMedrash Vahamasa, that's the distinction that the Medrash is making between Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Mashiach. In the times of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Jews snuck out, they ran out under cover of darkness, and then they were chased by the Egyptians. So all of that indicates the temporariness of this redemption. It wasn't that there was a fundamental change in the world and the Egyptians no longer wanted to enslave the Jews. They still wanted to enslave the Jews. That's why they chased after them. But they were coerced into allowing the Jews to go because God was punishing them. So that's why God refers to him and his heavenly court. In other words, this redemption came about through punishment of the evildoers, but not through changing the whole evil and eradicating it. As opposed to in the times of Mashiach, when it's going to be God on his own. It's not the heavenly court punishing people, but God himself is going to destroy and eradicate evil. Only God can step in and do that. And once that happens, so then the Jews are not going to have to flee. They're not going to have to run out chaotically because there's not going to be any more evil in the world. Now the Jews are going to be redeemed and they can slowly at leisure walk out because no one's going to chase after them because this is not just a temporary redemption that was forced on the people, but the whole nature of the world internally has changed and no one's going to chase after them. Now, the Medrash Vamasa does add that this is all the view of Benzoma, but we know that the rabbis disagree with him. And in fact, there is another tradition about what happens in Mashiach's times. The Gemara quotes from Shmuel, Ein bein ha'olam that the only difference between this world and Mashiach's times is a political difference, that the Jews are free and autonomous and no one threatens or attacks them. And the Rambam actually rules that way. So there is a different tradition that even in Mashiach's times, it's not going to be that evil is eradicated, but it's going to work the same as Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. There's still going to be evil people who want to attack the Jews, but they're going to be stopped by Mashiach with Hashem's help. So according to that tradition, there is no fundamental difference between Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Mashiach. They're very much along the same lines. And that's what Rabbi Akiva believed because he thought that Bar Kochba, who was a military leader, was Mashiach. So you see that Rabbi Akiva was not looking for Mashiach to destroy evil, which Bar Kochba hadn't done, but he was looking for Mashiach to control the evil, to punish evil the way Hashem did in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And the Rambam quotes Rabbi Akiva's position because the Rambam rules according to that tradition. So that would explain the view of the Rabbanan that even in the times of Mashiach, we continue to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim because there they're not going to be totally different types of redemption. And even though Mashiach is a greater redemption, but it still makes sense to remember the earlier redemption of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which also involved controlling people that wanted to do evil and punishing them. As opposed to the view of Benzoma and the Medrash that the Hamedrash Vahamasa explained, they hold that in the times of Mashiach, the whole evil is eradicated. There's no one who wants to do evil anymore. So that's why 
it doesn't make sense to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim at that point because it's such a distant situation that no longer applies at all in the times of Mashiach. So this is another very nice insight from the Hamedrish Vahamaseh explaining two different views of what Mashiach accomplishes.